Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. series that is bridging Christmas and the start of Lent and we are halfway through. So today not only is it Communion Sunday in the life of our church but we are one month out from Lent. So Easter will be here very quickly. It's hard to believe. And as we are making this journey we've decided to kind of take these moments along the way to remember people just like you and me who were able to inspire others with their lives, their faith, and their work. And so today, we're going to talk about a young woman from France. Her name is Therese of Lisot. She is known as the patron saint of missions, as I mentioned to our children. And she died of tuberculosis at the young age of 24. She was born in 1873, but as I mentioned, by 1897, she was gone from this world. And let her be a testimony that your life is not judged by its breadth, but by its purpose, how you choose to live your life. She had been a Carmelite nun since the age of 15. It's pretty young to decide that you want to go into a monastic order. And if you've ever heard the term Carmelite and wondered what that was about, Carmelites, both nuns and monks, are in the monastic tradition, and so they generally live a monastic life in a monastery, and they trace themselves back to the prophet who is considered the founder of monastic existence, the prophet Elijah. And since the prophet Elijah had this great legendary battle on Mount Carmel, we get Carmelites. So if you're ever wondering what that is, these are people who believe in both corporate and individual poverty. So they are not about acquiring things. In fact, they are so poor that in other countries specifically, you will find members of Carmelite organizations, both nuns and monks, out begging for alms. They are actually panhandling, as we would say in the United States, because this is one of the ways in which they beseech people to help them do their holy work. And so Therese had been one since the age of 15. She is so important in Catholicism, and her writings are so poignant, even though she never lived past 24, that Pope John Paul II in 1997 declared her a doctor of the church, of the same and equal rank of St. Francis of Assisi. And there are only 36 doctors of the church in the Roman Catholic denomination, only, one, only four of them are women, so she is one of 36 and one of four, and she is the youngest of all of them. She had an incredible existence. Her life was marked by loss and struggle and tragedy. Her mother died of cancer when she was only four, and her father was left to raise five little girls by himself. All of them became nuns. And there's probably both religious and socioeconomic reasons for that. He had a way to ensure that they would be cared for, that they would have a connection and community and relationship even after he was gone. But he also believed that this was a way for them to live out their faith. And so when they desired to go into the nunnery, 
He supported them and encouraged them, and one by one, all of his daughters would become nuns. In fact, Teresa's parents are so important that actually our Pope Francis, who's currently sitting at the head of the Roman Catholic Church, not ours as in the Methodist Pope, but ours as in Christendom, Pope Francis actually canonized Teresa's parents. They are the first couple to ever be canonized together because of how they were able to shape and form and raise their daughters, even the mother posthumously, so that their daughters would be such incredible Christians and blessed generations after them. But Therese, again, did not have an easy life. She suffered from depression. She had countless bouts called scruples, which is called uh, that because it gives you causeless guilt. She was constantly racked with the feeling that she was unworthy and that she had done things for which she could never be forgiven. She also suffered periods of religious doubt. Yet despite all of that, she vowed to herself and to God that she would try to always smile, be kind, and unselfish. She considered this the pursuit of holiness in ordinary life. And she wrote and has been known for developing what is called the little way of spiritual childhood. And for those of us who are getting a little bit more vintage with every year, we all remain children of God, but sometimes we don't feel like children of God. We don't feel that childlike emphasis. But Therese gave not just Catholics, but Christians a way to connect to that. She said that there were two things that were absolutely important to the little way of spiritual childhood, trust and absolute surrender. What is faith if it is not trust in God? What is our faith if it is not trusting that God will be with us and for us and help us to accomplish the heavy things that Christ has asked us to do in his name for others. And absolute surrender, not holding things in reserve, but turning over to God not only our sinfulness and our frailty, our mortality, but also turning over to God the fact that we believe that God will use us to do wonderful things. And so she gave not only Catholicism, but all of Christendom these words. But as I mentioned, she never went on a mission trip. Not in her entire life. She was very frail in physical form, and she was mostly cloistered within the monastery, and that would seem like a paradox. How can someone who never went on a mission trip be a patron saint of missions, right? Even the kids were like, I don't know. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. But Therese reminds us that it's not so much what you do, but the heart with which you choose to do it. And so when she said that my mission work is not about where my feet go, but where my heart is, she was true. And she took the time to pray for people, to help raise money so that mission work could be done, to help devote what little resources that her nunnery had to helping people, to providing them a place to stay as they were on mission trips. She used her life and her meager means, but most especially her powerful prayer life, to bless other people. And so impactful is her story. She wrote her own autobiography. So incredible are her words and moving and powerful that another even better known saint was inspired to take Therese's name when she became a nun and took her holy orders. And it is because of the life and the faith of Therese that we got Mother Teresa. She took her name after the patron saint of mission work. 
and Mother Teresa is very well known for her mission work. But what I read to you today from the psalm really struck me as embodying St. Therese. And that is in the 19th psalm when it says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. Because sometimes our faith seems very complicated and confounding. Sometimes Christianity doesn't seem as easy as we might hope it would be. I've realized this from multiple angles now. One of the things that happens when you have a call to ordain ministry is that you have to go through a very long process of telling multiple groups of people over and over again your call story. And then going to seminary and getting an education, going through the ordination process, which is a very long and spiritually fulfilling yet draining gauntlet that we do. And at the end of it, you have this process here in the Virginia Annual Conference where you come before a group known as the Board of Ordained Ministry. And the Board of Ordained Ministry will see each candidate no less than two times. The first time you will come before the board when you are ready to go into your probationary or provisional period, which will last no less than three years. You come before them and you write multiple papers on theology, on your call, on how you will practice ministry, multiple papers, none of which are any less than 12 pages. And then you will sit before no less than four different committees and have an hour-long interview with each committee with a 15-minute break in between. And that's just the beginning. So you will have to do this, and you will have to officiate and lead a worship service and videotape that and send that in, and they want to see the transcript or the manuscript to your sermon, all these kinds of things. Well, we do this, and then three, at least three years, or some, some of us more, later, we come back again. And this time, we sit before the board in three committees. We come before them once more and explore with them our theology as Methodists. We explore with them our practice of ministry, and we explore with them and convey what it is that about us in our leadership and vocation that makes us capable of being ordained. And in the Methodist Church, we consider this a very important thing because you are ordained to a lifetime of ministry. A lifetime. I can retire and they can call me back up. And they have. They've done this with clergy. Clergy who have retired have been called up to say, we need you to be an itinerant pastor here while we're looking for permanent clergy, all these different things. So just because you retire does not mean that you are out of the pulpit forever, that there are things that happen. So we take it very seriously. And when I went before the Board of Ordained Ministry my two times, it was a harrowing experience. It is very intimidating to sit before no less than like 50 people that have your future in their hands. And then you have to convey to them in multiple one-hour interviews on the same day that you should be considered clergy for the rest of your life. It's a very intimidating process. It was just as filled with anxiety and fear and overwhelming urges to flee the room as it was when I was pregnant. And I've only done both of those one time, and if you made me do one again, I'd pick pregnancy. Because there's no epidural for the Board of Ordained Ministry. And so when I was called and asked if I would serve on the Board of Ordained Ministry, I thought, it can't possibly be as bad as it was before, right? I've already done this side of the table. Let me go sit on the other side of the table. Oh, how naive I was. Because when I was coming before the Board of Ordained Ministry, the only paper I read over and over again were mine, right? That's all I had to worry about was myself. But here, for months, I've been praying for 
candidates by name. I've been reading their papers and watching worship videos because what happens is here in Virginia, we have so many people who are applying for provisional and um, or, uh, recognition of their elders as uh, their orders as full elders or deacons, that we actually have our board split into three teams, and then each team mirrors the same committees on it. So that that way, I only have to read over and over again and watch worship videos for five or six or ten candidates rather than, you know, 40. So what ends up happening is that you are watching these things, and I ended up on practice of ministry, and I thought, well, that's good. I don't have to read an 18-page paper for theology. No, I had to read 12 to 15 pages from everybody for practice of ministry. I had to watch a worship service where not only did they preach and officiate, but then they had to officiate Holy Communion. And then I had to read their sermons, and I had to read a Bible study curriculum that they had. So instead of the one 18-page paper, I had four different things I had to look at constantly and over and over again. So what I ended up finding out was I was very naive to think that this was going to be easier. But the other thing is that I was so nervous for them. I knew what it was like to be sitting on the other side of that table and to have somebody who holds a vote in your future. It was very intimidating. And what I realized sitting there reflecting on it, because I had been studying and reading about Therese, is that sometimes we make this so complicated. Now, don't get me wrong. It is very important that clergy especially should be able to articulate the Wesleyan means of grace. It's very important that I should be able to tie our doctrine and our theology to our scriptural foundation. It's crucial that I should know our tradition and history as Methodists and be able to articulate that in some kind of concise and meaningful way. But at the same time, sometimes you're like, I would rather be doing children's time. I would rather be having that moment where we can kind of get rid of all the seminary language and we can just get down to brass tacks. And what ends up happening is that I started to develop an appreciation for this simple way that Therese articulated. And because of her articulation and the belief that you didn't have to be clergy in order to be a good Christian, let me repeat that, you do not have to be clergy to be good Christians. And one of the things that I am most grateful is that there are way more of you than there are of us. There are far more laity, exponentially more laity than there are clergy. Because for us, sometimes we can get so bogged down in the headiness and the intellectualness of it, we can get bogged down in the administration or the practicality of it that we forget there's a whole world outside of the walls of the church. But you remember that. You come from outside and you go back outside. And you see and discover problems that you know that Jesus Christ can transform. And so that simple way was really important. And it spoke to countless Christians who heard the story of Therese. And because of that simplicity, she made it seem possible that they could actually have an important life. The idea that you don't actually have to go on a mission trip to be considered a patron of mission is irrational to some of us, nonsensical to more. But what it really says is that we are more deeply and fundamentally connected to one another than we ever realized. There were people who were out doing mission work in the world that didn't recognize that they were getting strength from a 20-something back in France. Because that 20-something was praying for them, over them, about them, 
and willing them to succeed. Willing them to be able to help people who are in need. Show them the compassion and the love of Jesus Christ. And maybe if time was willing, give them a little testimony about what their faith means. But really, it's the altruism of mission work that is so impressive. The fact that there are people that will go out into the world most of the time on their own dime in order to bless other people. And Therese reminds us of that, that there are always people that are willing to go, but there are other people that cannot. And she reminds us of the struggle that endured. You have to respect someone, even of that young age, who recognized that even while she was feeling some horrible things in her body, in her mind, in her heart, and even in her spirit, that she was not going to visit that on other people. I'm not saying that she didn't have a group of people within whom she could confide, because she did. She had not only a community of other Carmelite nuns, some of whom were her sisters, but she had others within her family and within her religion and her friends with whom she could share her burdens. She could tell them her struggles. She could share with them, today is a dark day for me and my depression is overwhelming. She could say to certain people, I feel so guilty that I could die. and I don't know why. She had found safe places for her to share that doubt that arises in every Christian, whether you're ordained or not. Do I believe the right things? Am I right about this? Can I truly be saved? All of those questions that we ponder, they are all good and right questions. One of the things that we fail to teach in any seminary, and most of the time in any church, is that Christians are allowed to feel every emotion. You are allowed to be angry. You are allowed to be sad. You are allowed to be afraid. You are allowed to feel all those what the world calls negative emotions. The difference is that Christ tells us that we can't use them to hurt other people. And if you've ever had an experience where someone came into your space, whether they came home or you went to go see someone and they had had such a horrible experience that they were very angry and they turned around and started yelling at you, then you know what it is like to have someone visit their negative emotions on you. But Therese reminds us that even though we feel these things, we do not have to give that to the world. We don't have to give those to another person as a burden. Instead, we can focus on, I am afraid. I am so sad. I am deeply depressed and spiritually disturbed. But despite that, I am going to show people love and grace. I am going to do whatever I can do to help them. That is her living testimony. And there are plenty, because she wasn't born that long ago, who took the time to write and record how she always seemed to find a smile for them. She would do things that people thought she was physically incapable of doing, especially toward the end as she suffered with tuberculosis, but she believed that what she could do was bless another person. Now, she could have been one of those people that we know, 
I think the longer we live, the more we meet someone like this who just revels in the misery. They have set up shop in a land of absolute garbage. And everything is bad, every day is worse than the last, and tomorrow looks like living hell. But that was not Therese. She was determined not to let her negativity that she experienced in life destroy the glorious message of Jesus Christ. She wouldn't let her mind, her body, her spirit become a barrier to the good news of the gospel. And because of that, people saw Jesus Christ. People knew that no matter whether this mission trip went well or not, there was at least one person who was going to welcome them home with a smile. There was at least one person who was going to recognize you did your best. Welcome home. And because of that, it changes the way we look at things. It is very hard to live in a world where we are constantly bombarded with negativity, negative images, negative news reports, and frankly, some terrifying events. It is very hard to stay positive. How do you find a way to synthesize what we know, what we discover, what we learn, and what falls into our laps with the fact that we are being asked to be a people of great hope? Try being a person of great hope and watch the news for three hours straight. Try to be a person of great hope and pick any news article and go and read the 200 comments. It's hard. It's really hard. Because a lot of us, older children of God, haven't learned the lesson of not visiting our negative emotions on other people. Because of it, we can be heartless and cruel. Because of it, we can be damaging and detrimental. And there is this quiet voice of Therese crying out, saying, you don't have to be a victim of your anger. And you certainly don't have to victimize other people with it. She is encouraging us to stop and recognize when we have those feelings. Absolutely recognize them. To be in conversation and community and prayer about them. To be seeking treatment if it is possible. To make sure that we are addressing what we can address. But at the same time, she is encouraging us to set healthy limits. If you are so angry that you can only scream at a person, then maybe you need to find a quiet space to be alone so that you can scream to your heart's content. If you have ever been a person that has done this or you have experienced the ramifications of another human being doing this, you do not want to make important decisions from a place of fear. And if you are feeling anxious and afraid, don't make important decisions. Instead, find a place or a person or a prayer that will help you regain that peace of Jesus Christ. She documents this in her writings, that you don't have to fall victim to the fear and the pain and the suffering. That instead you can literally rise above it and shine in the darkness, because that is what she is. There was this light burning at a little convent of Carmelite nuns in a place in France called Lisot. 
And there, her light inspired other people to ramp up their lights. Her faith was fueling the faith of other people. If a girl who lost her mother at the age of four, who has spent her entire life suffering with bouts of mental illness and spiritual warfare, and here it is, she is too sick to even leave the convent, and if she can still smile and praise God, what can't we do? She gives us hope and encouragement, but she also holds us accountable. And perhaps that is one of the greatest gifts that she brings to us. We don't have an excuse. I have long said that I am not a great mission pastor. I mean, people come into the church and I'm happy to receive you. I will talk to you and smile at you and find whatever resources. If you want me to go out in 90 degree weather and build a house with no indoor plumbing, we are going to have problems. My spiritual gifts are very well suited for indoor plumbing and AC. And for a long time, I used that as an excuse for why I didn't get involved in mission work. And then I realized that that's not an excuse. That's the utter garbage. That's me visiting my problems on other people because there are people in this world that deserve mission work in the name of Jesus Christ. And woe be it for me to prevent that from happening, which means I have to find ways like Therese to encourage people to empower and equip them, to find the money, to find the will and the way, and to undergird everything with prayer and the hope that comes from knowing that when you do things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that Christ goes with you and changes everything. And so Therese has given us that gift. That is absolutely a blessing. And the Catholic Church for all of its linguistic mastery, using rich words like pneumatology and eschatology and sacramental authority, looked at a young woman and said, she figured it out. She found the way. And the way is not about complicated degrees and telling boards of ordained ministry, the way is finding out how to shine your light through your darkness. How do you shine your light through your darkness? When your darkness is in every fiber of your being, when your darkness is clouding up your thoughts, when your darkness is making you feel things that make even you afraid, when your darkness is threatening those tender connections to Jesus Christ. Do you allow the darkness to overwhelm you and hide your light? Or is that when you call upon Christ to set your faith on fire and to burn brighter than ever? Because if you are able to do something from the darkness, then you know it's not you. You know it is Jesus Christ with you and in you and through you. And that is a gift. And Jesus recognizes that we are going to have dark days. Some of us, they're not even dark days. They're not even dark weeks. We're moving into dark years. And Jesus knew that. And so Jesus knew that people needed a place to go. 
not just a place where they could lay their burdens on the altar. Jesus knew they needed a place where they could go and know that they were always welcomed, no matter what state they were in. Come to a place where they know that there was a place for them, reserved for them, and all they had to do was show up. No RSVPs required. Jesus knew that you needed a place where you could come and you could actually receive. So he gave us the Holy Communion table. And so we often think about it here in this context, in worship, in a sanctuary, in a church. But Jesus gave us something about communion that cannot be held within the walls. Gave us something that is not limited to the presence of the body of Christ in the midst of worship. Jesus gave us unfettered access to God's grace. And when you come to the communion table, that is what you are tasting. Now, I know a lot of us, we come to the communion table and we're like, what kind of bread am I getting today? What's in that cup? What you are getting goes far deeper than your taste buds. What you are getting at this table is what Therese recognized that Christ did for her every time she turned to God. She got hope. This is not your end. This is a rest stop on the way to the kingdom. And here you come to refuel. Here you come to discard the things that are weighing you down and holding you back. Leave your sin and your guilt here and take God's grace with you out into the world. And so communion is for us not just a means of grace, not just a remembrance of the scriptures and what Jesus did for us on the night in which he gave himself up for us. It is actually communion with each other, the saints, and God's grace. Christ meets us here. And for those of us who have the opportunity to taste that grace, what we discover is that it will stay with us long after our bodies have metabolized the bread and the cup. And that will be the reminder to you that Christ is with you. And the next time you need a place to stop along the way, the next time you need to meet Jesus Christ, the next time you need grace because that's the only thing that's going to get you through, this is here for you. It is the one thing that we will never deny you. You can ask for it to come to you, and it will come to you in the United Methodist Church. You can ask for it repeatedly. You could be the first one up here, do a loop, and be the last one in the room, and you will still get communion. Come on, So when you have the opportunity today to receive God's grace, whether it is actually receiving these elements being part of the liturgy and the prayer of pardon and confession, or whether it is simply recognizing that the same God that does this for us did this for every one of us. Remember that your faith is what changes the world. It's not your hands. It's not your feet. Unless those are fueled by your faith. Thanks be to God for incredible gifts of faith in people like Therese.
May you be the next saints, not just here in Crozet, but remembered for how you touch and change lives. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.